Good morning. Let's go to the word in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon is noted for saying that preachers should carry a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other to be informed and then to be informed by God regarding the events that are happening in the world. And this week, the newspaper feels a little bit heavy, today marking the 21st anniversary of 9-11, and then this past week with the Queen passing, there's a lot to talk about. This is a new, a new era, in a sense, at least for, for England, not America. Um, and in regard to our other hand, we hold God's word timeless truth for us today, this morning, to inform how we ought to think, feel, believe, to form a perspective. But Queen Elizabeth, what an individual. Queen Elizabeth, I was looking up, uh, just reading all the articles that are coming across the newspapers. She, she saw 15 prime ministers come and go. That's a lot of prime ministers. She met with 13 of the last 14 sitting presidents of the United States. She had a 70-year reign. That's a long time. And in that 70-year reign, that's, that's the majority of the country's living memory. Most, most citizens don't know anything else but Queen Elizabeth. She was a colossal figure, but though she wasn't the head of government for England, she was the head of state, the head of the, the Church of England, and a remarkable person. Mark Jones, a pastor and author, noted this in regard to her passing. And this is just so timely in view of everything that we have sung and talk about today about the reign of Jesus Christ. He said this, the queen is now in the presence of the king of kings, where she now has more power and authority in heaven as one of his subjects than she ever had on earth. And for us, as we study Colossians, we have studied time and time again in God's word that Christ is indeed above all, even kings and queens. And 70 years is a wonderful reign, but our Lord reigns for eternity. And there's no change in the monarchy <laughs> God reigns and he will continue to reign forever. But when you look at the newspapers and you're not looking at the hot tea being spilled about the royal family and who's the new heir and all of that, when you look at what is the response for England's citizens, this is the question. Given that the queen has ruled for so long, how will they respond? How will they, how will they respond to the monarchy, to the government, and how will they respond to the world? And for us, in this passage in Colossians, Paul 
is helping Christians after teaching us that Christ is above all. He's addressing the church for how we are to respond to the reign and mission of Christ in light, and in light of that reign and mission, how the church should respond to the world. The point of this passage this morning, very simple, is this. Christ being above all for the Christian looks like a life of prayer and evangelism. Christ being above all for the Christian looks like a life of prayer and evangelism. And we're going to see this in two points. The first, and we're just going to follow the commands that Paul gives us. First, God's mission in prayer, verses 2 through 4. And then God's mission through evangelism, verses 5 and 6. So let's go to point one. God's mission in prayer, verses 2 through 4. We find these commands at the end of Paul's letters to Colossians. We're at the conclusion of the letter, and these commands come after a theologically rich section of what Matthew talked about and what, what, I, what I preached earlier about the put-offs and the put-ons. It also comes after this, this beautiful uh, testimony to who Christ is being above all. And in light of that, now he is helping us lift our eyes to how we are to respond to God in our life and to the world. There is moving from the specifics of Paul kind of gave us a backyard to play in with a, with a playground and a fence. And he says, this is where Christians play. There is don't go over that fence and laugh and be gleeful in this, in this area. And very specific commands, how to interact with your spouse, with your children, with your coworkers, how you're to view uh, certain activities. And now, again, he's moving our eyes to a broader optic of life. He's lifting up our gaze to our neighbors and to the Lord. Now, this passage that we're looking at, it's not an explanation of what prayer is. There's no definitions given here or why we should pray. Rather, Paul is just informing us of the lifestyle of prayerfulness that the Christian should have and the quality and the flavor of said lifestyle. This command has a Christian theology of prayer already baked into it. And so I think for us, it's important to be on the same page before we start diving into what does it mean to be steadfast in prayer? to be watchful in it with thanksgiving. Tim Keller has a definition that, that I think is incredibly helpful for us as we start, and he defines prayer as the personal, communicative response to the knowledge of God. The personal, communicative response to the knowledge of God. Now, why this is so helpful, I think for me personally, because I think we can sometimes think that prayer is this action. Like, okay, well, I need to have a better spiritual life. So if I pray, then that will eventually turn into something amazing. And what this definition helps us understand that scripture teaches broadly that scripture is actually a response to what God is already doing in our hearts. And it's so often posited in this place of, of just mere intercession, that prayer is, Lord, just heal my cat. Lord, would you help me with my job? My job's tough. I really need this. You know, uh, maybe it's finances. Lord, give me more money. Um, that, or, or, you know, legitimate intercession prayers. But as 
Matthew reminded us last week, the Bible gives us all kinds of categories for prayer, all sorts of categories for prayer, because there's all sorts of ways that we can respond to who God is. One of the pitfalls that we can get into is before we get into a text like this is that to be steadfast in prayer is us doing a sort of chiropractic work on the Lord that we need, we need to help God see what we see and to feel what we feel. Lord, I, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't say this out loud, but maybe you can relate to some of these. You know, God, would you care for my unbelieving mom or dad or my coworker or my unbelieving child? Because I love them and I think you should love them. Or Lord, would you please care for that unreached people group in Papua New Guinea that don't have a copy of your word? Would you start loving them? And would you raise up somebody? Because I think that'd be great if you thought like that. Or Lord, would you stop the cancer from spreading? I want to remind you to love me because I don't see your care. Father, would you give me faith and perspective to see you as glorious? I think you might have forgotten to work in my life, and so here's my humble reminder. Lord, would you do something? When we pray and we make a habit of prayer, it is not us working on the Lord, but the Lord working on us. It is him doing a chiropractic work on us, realigning our hearts, our desire, our affections, our wants, our perspective on what he is already doing in the world and in the church. And so grounding our outlook on these two commands that prayer is a response to who God is and what he's done and seeing that prayer is actually more of a spiritual endeavor of the Lord. That's, that's God's providential way of working in our lives to change us. Let's look at the text before us. Verse two, continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. This command is more about a lifestyle. That's what Paul's getting at here that we're to be marked by a prayer-filled life. One thing that I appreciate about this command is that Paul is letting us know the realness of the world in this command. Be steadfast. Why? Because we're tempted to not be steadfast. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to read that in the text. We continue steadfastly because oftentimes, brothers and sisters, we don't want to continue We can be tempted to, to, it's infrequent. There might be, there's not a pattern in our prayer. It's sporadic. It's not a habit. Paul is encouraging us that in our lifestyle that we need to be attentive to have endurance. Kind of like, you know, Navy SEAL videos that are really like uh, guilt inducing, at least for me from a fitness standpoint of like these guys in the waves, like holding arms. I'm like, what are you doing? But they're holding arms and they're just waves are crashing over them and they're holding it. That is what Paul is calling us to do. Hold, have endurance in the practice of prayer. Every one of us can relate to this point either in one of two ways. One way is that when life hits us, we pray and the other group of us, this would be my category, when life hits us, I don't want to pray. I want to give God the cold shoulder because he should have prevented that in the first place. We can relate to this 
when we hear or experience the death of a loved one, when we're let go from our job because of budget cuts or for not giving into an unethical practice or for whatever reason, or when you're given the news that you have cancer two days before Christmas and you have to look your wife and three kids under five in the eyes and say, daddy's not going to be here for very much longer. When you incur an unexpected bill during a season of financial turmoil, this is often the times that we don't pray or when we see that sporadic, infrequent, responsive prayer. The takeaway, the application of this command is that we would be steadfast in a habit and lifestyle of prayer, that in good or bad, we are being responsive not to circumstances, but responsive to the gospel that we are intaking regularly. That's the point. So Paul gives us this manner, but he fills it out in the the second part of the verse. So be steadfast and then be watchful with thanksgiving. What does it mean to be watchful? Is that kind of similar to being steadfast? I kind of, I think it is. When we think about steadfast again, we think about those guys in the wakes of, of the ocean holding arms for whatever reason, and they're just getting beat. And it's just hold, hold, endurance, watchfulness. That's attentiveness. We need to be, have endurance and attentiveness in the practice of prayer. Think about what watchfulness, again, this is just like the, the realness of the world. What, what, why, why would you be watchful? You're watching for good things? Typically, you're thinking of a guy that is a watchman on a tower. He is guarding a city. He's looking out for intruders, invaders, armies. Why? Because his job is to stand on that wall and to look out, not just for the sake of looking out, but to protect the economy and flourishment of the people behind the wall. The reason why I'm attentive to watching is because I want the families and, and, and the, the, the economy to flourish. And for us as Christians, let's translate that. What does it mean for us to be watchful? Is it just, all right, Paul, I'll be watchful. You know, the, the point of being watchful is because we're guarding the economy of our heart. We, the, the rule of Christ in our heart, that is what we're looking after. Look with me at chapter three. We're going back a chapter, verse 15. Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called in one body, and be thankful. Notice that connection. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving. Notice that connection. In your hearts to God. Verse 17, and whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is what we're watching. We are watching and protecting and being attentive and having endurance in our prayer, watching and making sure that our heart is feasting on Christ, the rule of Christ in our heart. The Christian's theology of prayer is that we respond to God who first loved us while we were sinners. How can we have endurance and attentiveness in prayer with thanksgiving? We stand in awe of what Jesus has done for us. 
That is, that's the point. And I'm going to mention this later. I'm going to say it again right now. Notice where this command is in the letter. Did he give it at the beginning before he started talking about who Jesus was and what he's done? Or did he give it at the end? This is a response to the revelation of who God is and what he's done. We are steadfast because we read that Christ Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, that he holds everything together. And in response to that, oh boy, I'm going to be watchful. That gives me endurance because Christ is worthy. Verses three and four, I love this. So he gives this, you know, packed phrase, be steadfast, be watchful. There's a lot being baked in there. But then he says, oh, by the way, also pray for me. Pray for me that God would open a door for the word that I might proclaim the mystery of Christ. The reason which I'm in prison, that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. So we, we see in this part, I, I've labeled it prayer as God's sword. I think one of the best ways to illustrate these two verses is one of my favorite stories, I think, in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, but in the first five verses, it is a pretty stark reality for the early church. We see that James is beheaded and we see that Peter is imprisoned and likely to incur the same fate. And you have to think about this story. This is the first time a, a government has attacked the church. How is the church going to respond to this? Now think about Acts. Now, now think about Old Testament. Think about your whole Bible. If this was David, King David, the man, the bomb.com King David and his mighty men, one of them was beheaded and another one was in prison, likely to incur the same fate. What would he have done? He would have picked up the sword. Israel would be at war with the Philistines. But notice, notice what scripture says in Acts 12. It says this, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. That is the sword of the Christian. You want to change the world? Pray. And what we see Paul doing in Colossians 4 is that he is, this isn't some kind of pleasantry at the end of the letter. Hey, would you just pray for me? He believes that the church can, through prayer, God will act. That if the church prays, Doors would be open. And the doors being open, that isn't like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm praying that I can tell my barber that I'm a Christian. He's praying for effective, impactful, actual evangelism, that people's lives would be changed by the cross of Christ. He's praying, church, in addition to being steadfast, would you pray that God would open up real doors that sinners might know you? That's, that's deep theology. That, do we live like that? Do we live in a manner that when we pray, we believe that we're storming the gates of heaven and in return, the gates of heaven, God is decreeing and working through that on mission through us. It's humbling that the Lord of creation, the King of kings would use our prayers in response to who he is to be on mission through us. One thing that we can also fall into here is we can see that Paul, Paul says, open a door to declare on account of which I'm in prison. 
And that for us, we can read testimonies of people, people of faith or, or Paul here, and we go, hmm, persecution. Uh, you're, you're weighing it out, and you deduce that the benefits of evangelism are outweighed by the risks of failure or persecution. Brothers and sisters, two things. God has ordained that heaven will be that place of no persecution and of suffering. You won't lose friends in heaven. But unfortunately, that is not today. We, we do not exist in heaven yet. But most importantly, what I want you to take away, that God has ordained prayer as his divine means to create real, authentic, effectual opportunities for the proclamation of the gospel to the lost. Prayer is a response to who God is. It is formative to us. It's not like a hobby horse of some Christians. Christians pray because God uses it to mold us into the image of his son, to change our delights into his delights. And he also uses prayer to save people. Prayer is God's means of sanctifying us, but it is the bedrock of God's mission. Brothers and sisters, prayers in Richmond, Virginia impact gospel mission in Bolivia. Prayers at Kingsway Community Church impact the gospel being proclaimed in Africa to unreached people groups in Asia, to the lost in Midlothian, to Richmond, your family, your lost child. I want you to feel the heat of that. Prayer is not just something. It is, it is a coal that God uses to strike a fire. It is the means and the spear tip of his mission. It is the sword of the church, and we would be woeful to neglect this in our lives, both individually and corporately. Continue steadfastly in prayer. But not only do we participate in God's mission through prayer, we also participate in God's mission through getting out there in evangelism, which brings us to the second half of this passage, God's wisdom, or excuse me, God's mission through evangelism, verses five and six. I, I, lo I love this because this is one of those healthy tensions that we see in scripture. We just read that God is so, he's the one that opens the door for the word to proclaim the mystery. He's the one that does it and he changes us through prayer and yet he goes, don't mess it up. Be wise, answer as you ought to. If there's an ought, there's an ought not. There is a proper way to do it. There is a wise way to do it and a foolish way to do it. How do you connect those two together? We as Christians believe in a fully, there is a robust sovereignty here. He is invincibly on his throne. He sits on his throne and there are kings and queens at his feet. Everything in creation is his. And he says, it is mine. There is nothing that goes outside of his rule, authority, reach. There's nothing inappropriate for him to touch or to do because he is king. And yet, we read in this text, be wise in how you deal with outsiders, with those that are outside the church that do not know the Lord. Be gracious in your speech. Season your words with salt so that you might know how you ought to answer them. 
in the moment. We can feel comfortable at times being on this side of it, on the sovereignty side. And we go, well, if God's decreed it, then those unbelieving people will get saved. That is not what we see. Just as God has ordained your personal spiritual life to be changed through prayer, God has also ordained your hands, feet, and specifically in this text, mouth to be God's means of changing lives. And this text, what does it mean to walk wisely? I think we can go, particularly in America, we can go walk wisely just means, all right, so I need to make sure that I'm not, don't, don't, don't be James, don't get beheaded out there, you know, keep it together and, and, and keep your cool so you can think about the long-term investment of, of your character, of, of being a good person on your street and eventually God will have a man crawl through your window and say, what must I do to be saved? And then that's the moment and that's what being wise is. Being wise is, is being gospel-centered. It is what, what we just read. Again, let's go back to chapter 3, verse, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. There it is. Connect that to chapter 4. What does it mean to walk in wisdom? It means, it, is, it means Jesus. That's the answer. It is the answer in this text. Let Christ rule. It is Christocentric. Christ Jesus is the center of that wisdom. This is what it is. I was, um, it, being, being, walking in wisdom is seeing the world for what it is. Because walking in wisdom, the wrong perspective is, again, just kind of this proverbial, live out the book of Proverbs and you'll get some, some great gospel opportunities, which I'm not, that can happen. But godly wisdom as 1 Corinthians informs us, is foolishness to the world. If you act like a real Christian, you will be called a fool. You will be thought of as foolish because godly wisdom, we see the world for what it is. We see that God is glorious and that he's the king. He's sitting on the throne. We are dead in our sin before a holy God and he, God himself, that holy God, who the, if we stand before with no help whatsoever, and if I stand and try to plead my case, I'm, I'm ruined, that that holy God came and stepped into time through the Son to live the life I couldn't live and die the death that I deserve so that I, by faith, could respond to that and live forever. I was having coffee uh, with a brother in his church, and he had this great illustration for the world of like, we, it's, like this is what heavenly, this is the heavenly outlook, that we would see our house, the world is a neighborhood, and our house is not on fire, and everybody else's house is. That's like walking in wisdom is in light of the gospel that God has changed our lives and we testify to that life change to a dying world. Walk in wisdom. Second phrase, making the most use of the time. That verb can be found in other places in the New Testament, particularly in Galatians 4. For at the perfect time, God sent his son to redeem those under the law. It's a marketplace term of saving someone. And in here, we have Paul saying, save your minutes. Redeem the minutes with those that are outside the church. Again, making the best use of the time, realizing that we have a glorious future in heaven. And there are, there are people that we love dearly that do not share that future. There are no 
there are no neutral minutes with unbelievers. Every minute is precious because that is a minute that we can talk and testify to the Lord. There is a sense of gospel urgency in that phrase. So how do we make the best use of our time? The second, the the last part of this passage, our speech that we would, look at verse six, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We see the sovereignty and free will aspect of this, that there is a right and wrong way to do this. There's a fervency in our wise efforts. We want to be excellent. And maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, Caleb, that sounds a little legalistic to to say that I should be excellent. I mean, like, the Lord will use anything. The Lord is sovereign. Of course he is. I affirm all of that in the text. But we have to grapple with the second half of this passage. It's not legalism to say that the grace of God motivates me to respond to that grace excellently. It is because God is glorious, because of his love for us, because he has commissioned me. I have a job. I'm an ambassador of Christ. It's because I love that person that doesn't love the Lord that I go out and I strive to be most excellent. There's no striving No earning of salvation here. This is a faith-filled, God-ordained mission as an ambassador of Christ to a dying world. That's what evangelism is. It's not a hobby. It's not like, you know, this, this person has a prayer ministry or that's our evangelism guy. Paul is telling us at the end of this letter, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy of who Christ is and what he's done, all the puts off, put offs and put ons, all of you, everyone, every Christian, Continue steadfastly in prayer and walk wisely. Share the gospel. Walk wisely is share the gospel, synonymous. Share your faith. Our speech is to be gracious. What does it mean to have gracious speech? I think one of the cross references that we can look at here is Ephesians 4.29. Is it kind? Is it true? Is it necessary for the moment? The idea is that we are edifying, but we also as Christians can never, whenever we read grace, you should think of how gracious God has been to you and respond accordingly. That is how our speech is to be. This isn't a, a uh, it's not just be a nice person, but it is also, it informs, we, the, you look at someone talk and you'll see what they, what they love. And we love the gospel, and those that rehearse the gospel in our hearts will show fruits of that in our speech. Are you characterized by the fruits of the gospel in your heart? Seasoned with salt, this is a fun phrase. Shout out to seasoned saints. They've supplied a bag of salt underneath all your seats. I'm just kidding. Salt is a, is a fun biblical word. Um, oftentimes we can think of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount being that we would, that we would have preserving and life-giving words. I don't think we can 
ignore that. That, that could be, that, that's here, of course. You want that with your words. But I think Paul is getting at more so this idea of salt being that, you know, pizzazz of the meal, of the meat, of the dish, this attractiveness and winsomeness of our speech. Again, going to our most excellent practices in evangelism, that we would work to be excellent in our evangelism. You guys all know, I mean, this, every, everybody in this room knows what it's like to talk to somebody that has, like when you get someone going on their hobby horse, something that they're attracted to, um, they just can't stop talking about it, you know? And they're, they're, all, they're all about it. Like there's a lot of sauce on the sandwich with whatever their hobby horse is. And like, um, Josh isn't here, but Josh Kruger is a fisherman. Like he's a man's man fisherman. And he like stays up all night fishing and catching ginormous fish that I didn't know existed in America. But then he was telling me just the other day about this story of him going to Minnesota where they like drop you off in a helicopter with a flannel shirt, a, a, a can of spam and to fight grizzly bears. And they say, good luck, hope you live, have fun fishing. And like you, you hear that initially, you're like, I first off didn't know that existed in America. Second, I like that sounds terrifying. What happens if you die? Well, you die, like that's it. But by the end of it, all the dangers start moving from being dangerous to being attractive. And by the end of the conversation, I'm like, yo, Josh, sign me up. Like, here's my credit card. Take my money. Like, I want to join with you in that. That's somebody that's winsome and attractive in speech because they have wooed you to what has wooed them. And for Christians, we are wooed by the cross of Christ. We see what God has done in saving us from our sins. And we can't shut up about it. We love it. And when we share the gospel, that is basically what we're doing. We're just like Josh and the fishing trip. The foolishness of the cross, the Lord starts using that to start bringing the attractiveness of the cross and a conviction of sin and a desire of union and communion with God as God intended it to be in the garden. And that you're promising that I can get that in heaven one day if I turn from my sins and believe in Jesus today? That's exactly what I'm saying. This isn't a text of being seasoned with salt of um, like, let, let's, let's be apologists. You know, like this isn't like, all right, guys, proper response to Kingsway. We're going to have an apologetics course. where We're going to be talking about the metaphysical problems of the problem of evil. And, and we're just going to have the right answer to give to that person and any problem they might have with God. Nope. God doesn't need lawyers, Kingsway. He needs witnesses. He needs people to not, he doesn't need, he's the king. He doesn't need defending. He's on the throne. What he needs is ambassadors to tell of the goodness of the king. And that's what we want to be. There's a place for apologetics. Don't hear me saying that. But we want to be witnesses, not lawyers. My worry for the church at large in America, which would fall for us in this room, is that we are fine with a version of evangelism that is safe and comfortable but halfway there. It's a half, a half evangelism. That we would fall into this category of character evangelism. That, well, I'm a, I'm, you know, I, I'm a good guy. I don't sin a ton, I think. And I, I make good money and I have a house and I'm, I'm good at my mortgage payment and I have a wife and kids and my wife respects me and my kids are generally pretty good. I'm sharing the gospel. You are. And if you don't have character before you evangelize, we, we need to get you on first base. 
but, but oftentimes it just stops at first base. We never, we never continue on. We just go, well, you know, I talked to my barber and I told him I went to church. You shared the gospel. That's an introduction. That is the beginning of sharing the gospel. I want my neighbors to know that I'm a good guy. I want my neighbors to know that if they needed a tool, they could come to me. If they needed me to mow their lawn, they could come to me. That my children respect me and my wife loves me. Of course I want those things. I want them to know that I go to church. I want them to know that I'm a praying man. But what they need above all is to see Christ as glorious and Christ crucified. And when we pray, going back to point one, we're praying for successful evangelism. And God has ordained prayer and he has ordained you, Kingsway, and me to evangelize, to share the full gospel that Jesus has died for your sins and that the, the train wreck that is coming can be avoided. And instead of a wreck and a Christless eternity, you can enjoy God forever. Your house doesn't have to be on fire. That's what evangelism is about. Now, I want to say a special word of encouragement and application to a particular group of people, mothers. I do not want you to take a bucket of guilt and pour it on your head as you hear me going, share the faith. Because you're wrangling a bunch of kids and you're stay at home and you're trying not to pull out all your hair and you're just trying to get your kid to, to eat food or whatever it is. How, that, I can't do this, Caleb. I, I, I can't share the gospel like this because of my position as a mom. You are sharing the gospel in your home. And, and like per capita at Kingsway, you have more gospel opportunities than any one of us. <laughs> Every day you're sharing the gospel faithfully. You're raising the next generation. And I often think for the local church, how much of what we do corporately is for our children and raising up. It's not, I, I pray people come to know the Lord through the preaching of God's word faithfully every week. But, but how much more just down the hall at King's Kids, could, could that be our eternal impact as a church in, in, in saving young lives? If God would be gracious in that way. So moms, I want you to feel God's pleasure in your role and position as a mother. God has intended you to be there and you are doing, you are doing the work of the Lord. One last thing I want us to kind of lift our eyes as Paul's lifted our eyes with Colossians. I want us to lift our eyes a little bit from this passage. We've, we've talked about the specifics of prayer. We've talked about the specifics of evangelism. Zoning, pulling out, Paul Paul has talked in point one, command one, continue steadfastly in prayer. That is in relationship to God, loving God. Point two, how do we deal with the outsider, with, with a non-believer? How do we love our neighbor? Paul, in a way, is tipping the hat to Jesus' great commandments of loving God and loving your neighbor. And here I'm gonna repeat myself. Where did Paul put these commandments? Was it at the front before, before he told us about who Jesus is and what he's done? Or was it after all of the grace that God has bestowed on us? 
after. It is because of who God is, we respond. We don't act to get a response from God. We respond to the action of God already. And so for us, as we leave this room, how will we respond? How will we respond to God in the world? Continue steadfastly in prayer and walk wisely with outsiders because King Jesus is on the throne. He is sitting on the throne and he has commissioned us as ambassadors of his holy name. He has ordained that we, all of our flaws, because of our simple faith, all because of what Jesus did. I don't, you look at my resume, it's only Jesus. God says, great, you're gonna share the gospel through prayer and evangelism. The best response that we can have to this kind of passage is prayer. I think that's as we go live our lives and pray for opportunities, we would be foolish to neglect the power of prayer in this. So we're gonna sing a song together as a church to respond to God being kind to address us in scripture. And then as a church, we're gonna break into small groups and we're going to pray. We're gonna pray for two things. We're gonna pray for God's mission, just like how Paul asked for open doors. We're gonna pray for open doors. And then secondly, we're going to pray for evangelism, effective evangelism where we live with the relationships that we have. Feel free to bring up, um, if you know missionaries, we could pray for the missionaries here, but if you know other ones, pray for them. If you wanna pray for you personally, or if you wanna pray for a lost loved one, a coworker, you name it, because we believe this isn't a show. This is the church being the church. We are laying hold of God Almighty because we believe that prayer changes lives. A Christian church is a praying church in a church that shares the love of Christ with neighbor. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that you have, that you spoke to us first. Before we ever speak to you, Lord, it is because of your word right now that we are praying to you. We are responding to your kindness to us. And we are so grateful that your word that the word came down and died on the cross so that we might know your love and that we might share that love. Lord, would you please have your way in our hearts. Apply this word to our hearts, Lord. Motivate us and move us by grace. In your prayer, amen.